So I want to welcome the Ferndale campus. I want to welcome those of you here at our Bellingham campus and those of you that are joining and watching us online as well. We're glad that you're here with us. So last weekend, we finally got down to the nitty-gritty of the end times. We actually looked at a little tiny chart, because you remember I promised you we weren't going to have any you know, big eschatological charts, so I just shrunk it down into this little tiny one. And, uh, and it included a bunch of events that the Bible says absolutely 100% are going to happen. So let me just review from last week in case you couldn't be here. Last week we talked about the rapture, which we use the word release. The Bible says Jesus is going to come back and release his church from this broken world. And it's in that moment that we're going to have an opportunity to meet Jesus face to face. The people of God are taken away from a time that's going to happen down here on earth known as the tribulation. That's a reaction to the fact that so many people are going to disappear. It's a period of seven years right here on earth filled with devastation and desperation. While the tribulation is happening down here on earth, the people of God are going to be taken away to what we call the judgment seat of Christ. And that's where we're going to be rewarded. It takes place in heaven. God's children are rewarded based on our motives and our stewardship. Remember, it's not a judgment of sin because if you're a follower of Jesus, your sin has been forgiven and wiped clean. All right? An extension of the judgment seat of Christ is something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where we celebrate relationships. That's the moment when Jesus is married to his bride, the church, and a celebration breaks out that lasts for a very, very, very long time. And then at the end of the message last week, we talked about the great white throne judgment, which is a reality whether we want to admit it or not. And we talked about hell, and it got really, really quiet. It got really quiet until I reminded everybody that Jesus died So that you didn't have to go to that judgment, but instead you could go to the reward seat and be rewarded for everything that God had done inside of your life while you were here on earth. Well, as a part of that series, I want to go back to the moment that the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here's why I want to go back to it. You may not know this, maybe you haven't noticed it, maybe that you have, but the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Right? It just kind of shows up that way. Back in the Garden of Eden, God makes a man... And the man's all by himself, and God says, that is not good, okay? It's not good for a man to be alone. I know this for sure, okay? And so should you, especially if you're a guy. Because if you leave us alone by ourselves, we will spend our life wearing Spider-Man pajamas, living with inflatable furniture, eating food out of cans, and telling amazing stories about how cool we were as a football player when the reality is our uniform was really, really clean, all right? God knew that it was not good for man to be alone. So he created out of man a woman, one of God's daughters. And he brought her to his son Adam. And this was his reaction, okay? The Bible says Adam said this when he saw Eve for the first time. You are the flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Doesn't that sound romantic to you? Okay? And it doesn't sound romantic at all unless you really interpret what's happening underneath of the Hebrew language. Let me give you a modern transliteration of that Hebrew phrase. Adam would have done this. Nice! That's a better representation, okay? Adam and Eve are united as husband and wife, and it's perfect until sin crept into their relationship, and that's why we blame all of our marital problems either on them or on each other, okay? That's how it works. All through the Bible, the theme of marriage, husbands and wives, comes up. In the middle of the book, Jesus actually calls himself the bridegroom, 
And he calls the church his bride. Several weeks ago here at the Bellingham campus, Pastor Derek unpacked the beginning of Matthew 25. It was the anchor chapter for this series and told the story of how the bridegroom has trouble with his bridal party because they're not prepared. And some of them get left out because they're not prepared for a moment that happens in Matthew chapter 25, verse 6. Where the Bible says this, at midnight, the cry rang out, here comes the bridegroom, come and meet him. So we start with the wedding. In the middle is a wedding. And at the end, there's another wedding. At the end of the book, Jesus calls himself a bridegroom again with these words. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 7. Let's rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Then the angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus calls himself a bridegroom. And that kind of freaks us out a little bit, especially if we're a guy, right? It's like, because if you're a bridegroom and the church is the bride, does that mean I'm going to, how does that whole thing go together? Well, let me unpack it for you, all right? I loved being a groom. Some of you have seen this picture of me as a groom. If I could have the embarrassing piece, there it is, yes. I still love the mullet, the tux, I'm not so sure about, all right? That was me as a groom. But getting to that moment, who said, wow? Somebody just said, wow, thank you, wow, wow, all right? Getting to that particular moment took some work. I mean, I had to convince Laurel to marry me, and that was no small task. I had to ask her father for his daughter's hand in marriage. That was intimidating and downright scary. I had to propose to her, which I did, in a tuxedo on the top of a hill in Manitoba with fireworks going on, going off over top of our heads and listening to the song. Now I've had the time of my life. Yeah, I know. Adam had no game, but I had game, all right? I did, all right? Then came the wedding planning and the preparations, and finally, June 10th, 1989, we finally got down to the wedding day. And I will never forget the moment of anticipation, because I didn't see her ahead of time, and then she walked in. This is a picture of Laurel on our wedding day. I mean, she has not changed very much in 23 years. She really hasn't. I mean, I'm just, I'm, no wonder I look so happy in all of my wedding photos, right? And this is one of the moments in my life when I'm smiling and praying, Jesus, you can come back, but not yet, all right? I just want a little more time, okay? Now, the process of marriage we tend to follow here in the United States is very simple compared to the Jewish customs that led to a wedding. And I'm going to oversimplify the Jewish way of doing things and I promise you, if you're trying to wonder where in the world we're going with this, I'm all going to tie it together in just a little bit of time. Let me give you the five stages of a Jewish wedding. It starts off with a betrothal, all right? Betrothal was an engagement on steroids, okay? Because it was legally binding. You couldn't get betrothed and then break it off unless you actually went through a legal process. The potential groom would prepare something called a kitabah. It was a marriage contract, and he would come to his potential bride's house and to her dad one day, I like that part, and he would present this marriage contract, okay? Included in the contract was money. He would pay back her parents everything they had spent to raise her up to that point in their life. Think about that for a second. Now, okay, that 
plus a love bonus, you're looking at a lot of money. Now, according to foxbusiness.com, it costs about a half a million bucks to raise a kid to the age of 18. So you do the math right now, right? Half a million dollars plus a love bonus equals, I am really glad we don't do this that way anymore, all right, okay? Now we just boil it down to a ring, and actually that works, all right? Once the betrothal was laid out and the contract was laid out, the potential groom would pour a cup of wine and then he would lay it in front of his intended. And if she drank it, it was good. If she walked away, not so good. Okay? I still remember the moment that I had down on one knee, waiting for the answer. Waiting, hoping wincing just a little bit till finally out came the word yes i mean that's the moment that the bible is talking about when it describes what it means when it says mary and joseph were betrothed to be married they were promised to each other but it was legally binding if she drank it it happened this is what we called it, it was the acceptance and once she accepted they were betrothed and the hard work really started here was the tough part in Jewish culture, the couple didn't stay together at this point. So they didn't get to hang out together, go to Applebee's on Friday nights, go to a movie and make out on their dad's couch, okay? That's not the way that it worked. Don't pretend you didn't do it either, okay? All right. In Jewish culture, the guy had to leave. After the contract was accepted, he would leave. But before he left, he would stand up and announce to his family this statement. He would say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when it's ready, I will come back and take you to be where I am. Some of you in the room are going, I've heard that somewhere before. It's coming, okay? Just hang on to that. The usual practice was for the groom to go after he had been accepted, or his proposal was accepted, to construct a wedding chamber. It would be usually built on the back of his parents' house where they would live for the rest of their lives. How many parents are thankful that we don't do it that way anymore? It's just like, you're out of here, all right? He would build a room, and it was only done when his father said it was done. The wedding wasn't set, the wedding date wasn't set until the room was completed and approved of. So whenever people would walk by and ask the groom, hey, when are you getting married? This was always his response. Only my father knows. Some of you are going, I've heard that before somewhere too. Stick with me. Once the room was done, the groom was sent to get his girl. His father would bless him and send him out. And he would go and get her. And because the bride never knew when her groom was coming, it could be a short amount of time or a long amount of time, she prepared in advance so that she could be ready at a moment's notice. And she was prepared, always, with the constant knowledge that he could be coming back at any second. Well, when the moment happened, it was time for the actual wedding. And the groom would arrive, and he would actually blow a horn or a trumpet. Does that sound familiar? He would actually blow a horn to announce that he was coming. Then he would go and take his bride. They would make a covenant before God. They'd head back to his parents' house and not come out of the wedding chamber for seven days. Wow. All right? You guys don't know what to do with that, do you? All right. That's awkward. All right? Seven days, 
And then following the honeymoon, a feast would be thrown known as the wedding supper. And it was just a huge party to celebrate a lifelong covenant that had been made in the eyes of God. Okay, now some of you are like getting kind of lost and glassy with all of the Jewish stuff that I've just thrown in here. But I, but I, I want to remind you, I told you that throughout Scripture, Jesus calls him a bridegroom and that we as his church are his bride. So let's just take a look for a moment of Je- as Jesus uh, takes on this role of bridegroom. And don't forget everything you just learned. Because here's what you need to know. Jesus has proposed. He's proposed. John chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Jesus has opened a door through his death on the cross to a level of relationship that can last not just for a lifetime, but for all of eternity. At the cross, Jesus got down on one knee and said, This is how much I love you. Will you accept, will you accept this act of love and really embrace your life around it? Jesus has proposed. Secondly, Jesus has prepared. This is where it gets amazing. John 14, 1 and 2 says this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before he leaves to go home. We learned that in the simple, ser- in the simple series. He leaves, and this is what he says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. Ah. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus has been preparing for this glorious wedding for 2,000 years. And he's made a home for all of eternity for those that love him in his Father's Some stuff starting to come together for you now. I'm starting to see some head nods, all right? Thirdly, the Bible says that Jesus promised. John 14, 3 says this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. At this point, the disciples would have gone, this sounds like a marriage proposal. It's exactly what Jesus was trying to say. He was saying... I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. And only my Father knows exactly when I'm going to be coming back. So you need to be ready and watchful because it could be soon. But while you're waiting, hold on to that promise because when I say I'm coming back, I'm coming back. The Bible says that Jewish couples would create this marriage contract along with the money and, and be most rest assured, my friends, Jesus is paid as well. Matthew 6, 28 says this, This is the blood of my covenant, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Those of you who were here last weekend and actually received communion, do you really understand the impact of what happened when you drank that cup? You were accepting something. You were accepting what Jesus did for you. You were remembering it. You were letting it seep into your life. You were accepting the proposal of God to never ever forget just the length that it took for him to love you. My friends, the proposal of Jesus cost him his life. That's why the Bible says this to the men in the room and that are watching as well. The Bible says this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Gentlemen, Jesus died for the church. Which means you're called to die 
for your wife. That means all your selfishness and everything that makes you a quote-unquote modern man needs to go. And you need to look after your girl because she's a gift from God. That's what scripture says. I have a moment in every wedding that I've ever done that's one of my favorite moments because this is what happens. There's actually a couple of grooms in the room and they're going to smile and nod because some of them I warn ahead of time it's coming. Others of them I don't say anything. But in every wedding that I've ever done, I've stopped and I've looked at the groom and I've said, here's the deal. I'm going to ask you a question. You get the answer wrong, I'm leaving. And you can find somebody else to do your wedding. Because if you don't get this answer right, you don't deserve to get married. And I want to know the answer. And that father-in-law most certainly wants to know the answer. And everybody in this room wants to know the answer. So you better not screw this up. And they get this look on their face like, you have got to be kidding me. My question is always this. If it came down to a decision between your life and your bride's life, I need to know if you would die for her. And it usually gets really quiet. And the guy usually stares at the ground and then whispers, I will. And then she cries. And then her daddy cries, and it's awesome. (laughs) Jesus not only answered that question, he died to show every single person that's listening to this just how much he meant it. I would die for my bride. That's how much she means to me. That's what Jesus said when he died on the cross to save his church. I ask the question, and then we're ready for the vows. The couple stands, and and they make a covenant before God that they're together in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, in good times and in bad, as long as they both shall live. And something happens in that moment. It's not the power of a human promise. It's something that I believe we forget as human beings. When we make that vow, that covenant in that moment, God listens. And he hears every word that you say. Some of you are squirming right now because some of your earthly relationships made promises like that, but they didn't keep going. I get that. Because Christ the King is the place where it's okay to not be okay. And if that describes you and, and a little bit of your relational world, can I just tell you that you're okay? And can I tell you something else? The beauty about this marriage that I'm describing is the bridegroom in this marriage never breaks a promise, never disappoints, never forgets an anniversary, never makes an insensitive comment, never chooses football over anything. He just loves his girl so much, he's transfixed. And no matter how broken it may have been in your past, this marriage is still available to every person that's hearing me. Now, you know what's really, really cool? Something just happened. I just saw a bunch of husbands put an arm out, and I saw some wives reach over and grab a hand, and I saw a couple people lean in, and I saw one or two elbows, and that's good too. You're good? All right? 
But because that's available to us, I have a question for the bride of Christ today. As a member of the bride of Christ, have you accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? Have you given Jesus your heart, your soul, your past, and your future? Will you live for Him and Him alone in sickness and in health? For richer, for poorer. As long as God gives life to you. Will you covenant before God your faithfulness, forsaking all others for His glory and His alone? Is all that you have His? Will you obey, honor, respect, and follow Jesus all of the days of your life? If you will, please respond by saying, I do. Doesn't it just feel a little bit like a wedding? It was supposed to be. It was supposed to be. Because that is what God calls us to every day. Not a promise, not a human promise that lasts as long until we get into the parking lot, but a covenant before God that says, I'm going to be a bride. I don't deserve to wear the white that you offer, but I celebrate the fact that you can forgive me and love me enough to make that possible. A couple of questions as we get ready to wrap up. Number one, my hope and my prayer is that you've answered this question. The question is, have we accepted? Have you accepted the proposal of Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord, your Savior? Have you had your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you accepted his invitation to the greatest wedding celebration that will ever happen in all of history? Since the beginning of eternity till the non-ending of eternity. Have you accepted the invitation and said, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. And here's another question. It it may seem a little blunt, maybe even a little caustic, but I'm going to ask you the question. If you have accepted it, have you taken yourself off the market? I mean, think about it. When Laurel and I got engaged, she started wearing my ring. And when I got married, I started wearing hers. I like my ring. I've had this thing on my finger for 23 plus years, and I don't plan on ever taking it off. I rarely take it off unless it will endanger my finger, you know? using power tools or whatever. And I wear my ring because of this fact. I'm married. I'm married. I want to act like a married man because I am a married man. I'm not on the market. I'm not flirting. I'm not looking in any other direction because I've got a beautiful wife and my eyes are for her. That's the bottom line. I made a covenant before God and I intend to keep it. Here's the problem I see with a lot of believers. We're wearing the ring, but we don't act like we're married. Have you taken yourself off the market, or are you still doing a little thing over here and a little thing over here and trying to make sure you stay attached over here? And you're you're doing, you, you know, you're hanging out with Jesus, but you're dating that little thing on the side. The Bible says if you're in and you've made the covenant, you are off the market. You don't belong to anybody else. You don't want to belong to anybody else. You've got eyes for one person, and that's Jesus. And people should be able to tell. Amen? 
should be able to tell. If you've ever heard my story, you know that I've not always lived like God's spouse. There have been times when I flirted with the world, danced in sin, and broke my Savior's heart. I broke promises, treated God's love like it was dirt. I wandered away. He followed me. And then I found my way home. And I begged God for forgiveness, and God surprised me with his gracious, loving, and patient response. You know, I never ever could quite figure out why he was so willing to forgive and welcome back until I ran into the verse in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. It says this, As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So, you do, do we have to get this picture? You know, when we accepted the salvation of God, when God got down on both knees and said, this is how much I love you, and we actually said yes to Jesus, he didn't just stand up and say, well, that's very well then. Thank you so much. Shake our hand and say, let's enjoy a very happy life together. That's not the picture that the scripture gives us. The Bible says that God, when we have accepted that proposal, that he is giddy, stupid, head over heels, freaking out in love with us. That he can barely contain himself. That he wants to do a hip-hop thing, you know, because he's so excited. That's all you're getting, all right? Just so you know. That's all you're getting, all right? That he is just absolutely ecstatic over the fact that we would actually accept that because that's what he died for. That's what he wanted more than anything. It's like he's going to spend the rest of eternity saying, she said yes. She said yes. And he said yes. They said yes. Can you believe it? And we have an opportunity for the rest of eternity to be able to say as well, I belong to him. He loves me. He can't wait to come and take me home. He's been preparing a place for me so that we can spend eternity in heaven together. And oh my goodness, what a marriage that's going to be. John Piper is one of my favorite writers and uh, he wrote this amazing little piece that I thought fit so well as I get ready to close. He said, sometimes we joke and say about marriage, well, the honeymoon's over. But that's because we are finite. We can't sustain a honeymoon level of intensity and affection. We can't foresee the irritations that come with long-term familiarity. We can't stay as fit and as handsome as we were back then. We can't come up with enough new things to keep the relationship that fresh. But God says his joy over his people is like a bridegroom over a bride. He's talking about honeymoon intensity and honeymoon pleasures and honeymoon energy and excitement and enthusiasm and enjoyment. He's trying to get it into our hearts what he means when he says that he rejoices over us with all of his heart. And add to this that with God the honeymoon never ends. He's infinite in power and wisdom and creativity and love, so he has no trouble sustaining a honeymoon level of intensity. He can foresee all the future quirks of our personality, and he's decided that he'll keep what's good for us and change what isn't. 
and he will always be as handsome as he ever was. And we'll see to it that we get more and more beautiful forever. And he is infinitely creative to think of new things to do together so that there will be no boredom for the next trillion ages of millenniums. Here's the best news about the end times. The honeymoon's just starting. It's just starting. You know, I know for the guys, it's kind of weird to, to be talked about in bridal terminology. It's just kind of weird for us, right? But I know something about guys. I've never met a guy who didn't want to be fully accepted, respected, and loved. I've never met that guy ever. Some of them have different levels of crust over top of it, but in the base of their being, they want exactly the same thing. They want to be accepted, they want to be respected, and they want to be loved. And I've never met a lady who didn't want to be fully accepted, absolutely cherished, and loved. Never met that person. Because it's inside of each one of us. And here is the beauty of this. The only God who can meet those needs is coming back for the wedding of eternity and he wants you to be there not as a mere participant but as the absolute object of his affection sound good let's pray let's pray Jesus, I thank you for not just being willing to take a knee and ask for our hand, but to go to a cross to ask for our hand. Every time we take communion, may we remember the acceptance. Every time we read the words of John 14, would we remember that you've gone to prepare a place for us that only your Father knows the time of your returning. Lord, we invite you into this moment, and I pray that if there is anyone here who's never accepted that proposal, that today would be the day. And they would give their heart fully and completely to you, knowing that they will be accepted, respected, cherished, and loved. We give ourselves to being your bride. May the bridegroom come soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.